First Corinthians chapter 11. Let's pray before we get into the word. Father, we ask for your blessing on everything that you have given us in this word to provide for us wisdom and direction. And we understand that if we cling to it, if we follow your ways, we will be blessed. But we also know that if we do, we will suffer persecution. Father, help us not to shrink back for standing for what is right. And as we look at the church in Corinth and all the error that was there, we know that there was error because of Paul and how he wrote to them. But help us not to repeat that error. And Father, we need to be renewed inside with our commitment to you and to knowing your word so that we may not perpetuate any error which is out there. So give us wisdom, Lord, as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we covered verse 1 and verse 2. Follow my example in verse 1 as I follow the example of Christ. And of course this is the Apostle Paul telling those in Corinth not to look to the Apostle Paul himself for the example, but if Christ works through him and it is actually Christ working, look to Christ as the example. And also in verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I have passed them on to you. And the teachings were the apostles' doctrine and the practices which were there. Now, the apostles' doctrine, things that we need to understand as believers and not shy away from learning about these subjects are, for instance, the Trinity, the deity of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, the rapture of the church and the glorification of the saints, the tribulation, the return of Jesus to the earth, the thousand-year earthly reign of Jesus Christ called the millennium, the great white throne judgment, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says, some will be raised to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. This is also repeated in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth and everything that we have experienced here will be forgotten according to the book of Isaiah. That's what we're destined for and we will have new bodies in which we will shine like the stars in heaven. That's what we all need to know and be able to articulate to somebody who doesn't know Christ. And also the fact that we are all under a curse. We are all destined for hell unless we accept Christ. And God is real. The the evidence for God existing out there is just incredible. I was listening to something else this last week on... uh, it had to do with science and this man by the name of, I think his first name is Michael Behe, B-E-H-E. He discovered that these bacteria, bacterium that are out there, plural, they have this little tail and maybe you're familiar with it. It's called a flagellum. And this flagellum allows the bacteria to move inside a liquid material which would be in your body. Your body is liquid. They're microscopic. And they have this tail that extends out. It's at least as long as the body of the bacteria, sometimes twice as long. And they estimate that that spins, and I think it was 100,000 times, it was either a second or a minute, that that thing spins. And it's a little machine. And it has 
a drive shaft. It has clamps on it. It has the tail that goes out, which has been uh, elongated to such a point where it will actually propel the bacterium through the liquid medium. It also has reverse on it. So it has forward and reverse. It has brakes. There are 12 different working parts in this flagellum. And they've been able to uh, diagram what this thing looks like. And it's a machine. And this machine, they said, it cannot evolve by itself because there are too many complex items in this machine inside the bacteria. The bacteria has a machine on it. Could you imagine if you had a flagellum out your back and you got into water and it turned if it was just 100,000 times a minute? How many times? I mean, you would be the fastest boat out there on the water if you had something like that sticking out of your back. And so they've gone through studies, and this was a whole court case. It was in 2004 where they tried to say, oh, that's just creationism. You're just looking to your Christianity in order to say that there's intelligent design out there. And their argument fell apart in the courts, and there was a lot of animosity at the time. But this idea that God exists... Something like that cannot spontaneously generate even over generations of time, millions of years. It is not possible for the proteins to come together to create those. uh, I think there was at least 12 different items in this machine inside the bacterium, which implies there is intelligence behind it. Somebody had to put it together. And even Michael Behe doesn't say that, well, there's the Christian God, even though he's a Christian. He said, I just noticed this as a scientist. I see this thing there. And so God exists. And can we explain the existence of God to those who are out there? We need to be able to do it. And not just because the Bible told me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible told me so. We need to be apologists for the Christian faith. And so all of these doctrines and the existence of God, we need to be able to tell to others. And this is the apostles' doctrine and their practices in sharing this information. Verse 3, he goes on to say, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now this seems really, to some, the feminists who are out there, misogynistic. Now, this idea of there being a hierarchy. Now, there's a hierarchy, and a hierarchy, we have that in the military. You have the generals all the way down to the privates. Or you have the admirals all the way down to the the bottom of the line enlisted sailor. There's a hierarchy, a chain of authority that is established. And God also has that chain of authority where there is the father, then there's Jesus Christ, then there is man, then there is woman. And what comes next? Children. Children come next. Now, the way that this is written in the original language where it says the head of every man is Christ. The headship is what it's being talked about here. It can also be translated as source. For instance, who sent Jesus to earth? It was God the Father who did this. He was the one that sent Jesus here. It talks about this in the Gospel of John. And who sent or who is the source of man? Not woman, but man. Who is the source of that? We know that Jesus is. Jesus came down, created man out of clay, breathed into him the breath of life. And so man 
is, or excuse me, Jesus is the source of man. Who is the source of woman? The man. Where did the woman come from? Was she made out of dirt? No. Snips and snails and puppy dog tails? No. She wasn't made out of that. She was made out of the rib of Adam. So God is the source of Jesus here on earth. Jesus is the source of man here on earth. Man is the source of woman here on earth. So there is a hierarchy. And who is the source of children? The man and the woman. The unit. They are the source of children. So because of that, you pay respect from the one who is your source. And so that's what it's referring to here primarily. When we look at that, we're to give honor to Jesus Christ, who is the source of man. The woman is supposed to give honor to the man because he is the source of her. And children, likewise. We know that that's one of the Ten Commandments, that the children are to honor their fathers and mothers. Now, there is another meaning here, like headship or authority. But authority does not imply inferiority. And there's a a difference between the two. And some people would say, again, that this passage is misogynistic, where men are the head of women. What is that? No, they are just supposed to be submissive to those from which they were sourced. So the women come from the men, and they are to just be humble and submissive to them, just like we're supposed to be as men, humble and submissive to Christ, just as Christ is humble and submissive to God. So that's the context of what is going on here. And this idea, I'll read it again, verse 3 of submissiveness. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So I already explained the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the man, the woman, and then the children. I've already explained the military and also in business you have the chairman of the board all the way down to somebody in the mailroom, so to speak. Now, having this in mind, we know that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. We know that children are supposed to respect their parents. But also, there are consequences if we don't show that respect, if we don't give that honor. Now, Jesus will never fail to give honor to God the Father. What happens if we fail to honor the Son by believing in Him and what He did for us? There's a curse that awaits for any human being, and that is called judgment in hell, great white throne judgment, which is there. Well, what about wives? If wives are not submissive to their husbands, what happens in that? There's all kinds of problems that happen with that. First of all, since the man is supposed to be the authority, making the final decision, and the woman provides, the wife provides wisdom and insight to that man to help him live his life to guide him so it may be a benefit to her as well. And he's supposed to listen to that counsel, but he is ultimately tasked with having the final authority and the final decision. And if he forsakes that, then he is forsaking his God-given role as the one who heads up the household, the family. 
And if he mitigates that, if he puts that to the side, if he gives it to the woman, then there's going to be problems inside the family. If the woman is the head of the household, the things that the father was supposed to teach are not going to be taught as they should. And by the way, this is part of the curse. We already know this. We've gone through Genesis, how the desire of the woman is for the man, which actually means she wants to rule over him. And you know, three times in Scripture it says that the woman is supposed to be submissive to the husband. It says this twice in Ephesians and once in Colossians. And for the husband, it says that he is not to be harsh with the wife. That is Colossians 3.19. But it tells him twice that he is supposed to be loving to the wife. He's supposed to love his wife. So there's three for each. Don't be harsh and be loving twice and for the wife to be submissive to the husband. And if the husband is loving and dies for the wife, gives his life for her, then she can easily be submissive. But if you change that around where the woman is the head and she's making all the decisions and the husband becomes subservient to the wife, then there are going to be problems. Remember when I was talking about the stress of the man? There are more men that... uh, suffer from stress and suicide and all of those problems. That's what happens to a man who is not fulfilling his role. At least that's one potential uh, downfall to being a man who is being submissive to the woman inside the household. And by the way, if a man is going to lead, there's going to be problems. If a woman's going to lead, there's going to be problems. If the children start leading the household, there's going to be problems. Why? Because we're sinners. We, we want to take all the power for ourselves, but God says, no, don't do this. Well, what about man who wasn't submissive to God? What happened to him? He got cast out of the garden, and the, the whole curse, the fall, came as a result of that. What about Satan who doesn't submit to God? What's going to happen to him? He's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So there's consequences for not being submissive to those who are our source, namely Jesus Christ, and for the woman, the husband, and for the children, the wife. And to Jesus, God the Father, which will never turn out to be the opposite. Again, I will say, he will always be submissive. So Ephesians 5, 23 through 24 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their own husbands in everything. Not just some things, but everything. And that we are called to be co-heirs, which means the woman is not inferior to the man, they are co-heirs, side by side, Romans eight seventeen. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So women can be children of God as well as men being children of God, as well as children being children of God. We are all co-heirs with Christ. And so we are all on an equal plane. But those who intend to suppress women, they're evil. There are world religions that do that. Hinduism is one. Another one is the Muslim Islam. It tends to suppress women. I've, you've heard me say before that the Quran says if a woman, your wife is being disobedient, place her on your bed and beat her. And, and then they give instruction how to beat your wife so you don't knock out her teeth or damage an eye or leave bruises. And it's like... That's what we're supposed to do. That is the world that is antichrist. The world that is Christ elevates both women, men, and children. Those who love Christ, they are co-heirs. But there is this hierarchy which is out there. So the feminists who are out there would tend to interpret these passages in a specious manner, in a way that benefits them and condemns those who are Christians. But we are to remember that this idea of a hierarchy is in place, and if we honor that, 
then we will be blessed and so will the rest of the world. Then it goes on, and this is an interesting section of scripture here. Head coverings and long hair for both men and women. Verse 4 says, Every man who prays or prophesied with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. Now, have you guys ever been to a church where women come in with a doily or a scarf on top of their head, and that's how they worship? Have you guys ever been to a church like that? There are churches like that. They used to be more prominent, but there are churches like that. And if a man would wear a hat inside of a church, he would be condemned for doing so, according to the scripture. And it has to do with the way it gets interpreted. Verse 6, if a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. Now, this idea of cutting off the hair of a woman, that would be one of the greatest shames that could ever take place back in the time that this was written. You, in the Greek culture, you would be considered a prostitute or an adulteress if you did that, and an adulteress if you were to have your head shaved as a, a Jewish woman. And so it would be the greatest of shames that you could experience. Verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. And by the way, there are those who would talk about the Jews who are anti-Semitic. If you go to Israel today, you will see uh, the Jewish people. And you'll also see that here in this country, they'll be wearing yarmulkes. That's the little uh, head cap that they have on. And they'll wear it, especially on the Sabbath. And those who are um, practicing Jews, devout Jews, they will wear them all the time. They will not take those off. And by doing so, if you go to this passage, some people who are anti-Semitic will say, see, that's why they're cursed. They cover their head, and they're not supposed to cover their head. And again, that is a misinterpretation of Scripture. Verse 8 again says, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. You see how he, he qualifies that they are both equal here in this verse. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So how would this be misinterpreted today? I've already told you some of it. Men must not wear hats inside a church. Right, Buzz? Is that correct? Okay, and, and women are supposed to have their head covered, and they have taken this literally, where men take the hat off, women 
Put a doily on. If you don't have a doily, do put the shawl up on top there, wrap it around, make sure that you're doing that. And for the sake of angels as well, what is that? And some people will say, well, see, we need to practice this today because even the angels will be offended if women don't cover their head and men don't take their hats off. And, and they install that inside the church. They install other things too, like in Timothy and Peter. How is a woman supposed to make her beautiful, she, herself beautiful? She's not to wear makeup or pearls or braid her hair in any way. And the dresses are supposed to be overly modest. You know, that's, that's the teaching that gets out there. And you have whole church movements based on that, like the apostolic church, which is out there. And, and, of course, you've heard me talk about this before where the necks on dresses for women are up to, like, the the bottom of the chin there and the sleeves are all the way down and the socks are, the long socks and knee socks are below the dresses that go all the way to the floor and either she's wearing uh, the shoes that have, uh, like, a boot uh, on there so no flesh can be seen and there's no makeup whatsoever and do not come with a ponytail that's all braided in your hair and, and, and there are yokes that are placed upon people we uh, last year had somebody come to the church that was in a church like this and they called her into the office a couple of times and said I, I, we don't think you're getting it you know, your dresses are just a little too short. They're right above the knee, and they, they need to be a little bit longer down there, and the sleeves longer, the sleeveless thing. You ought not to be doing that. That is just not good. And that's not what this passage is talking about. What was taking place in Corinth was there was a feminist movement back there. And you, to learn this, you have to go to some extra-biblical writings to find out what's going on and and once they would become liberated become christians they would continue the behaviors that they had outside the church and as they were inside the church they would have a tendency just to interrupt a service a woman would stand up and say wait a second what about this and paul's going you know god does everything in order which we will get to in this book he says our god is a god of order and there was absolute mayhem at times Mayhem, like inside the church, everybody would speaking would be speaking in tongues or in their a different language all at the same time, and you'd be going, "What is going on here?" And Paul even says, "If you do that, will not people walk in and say you're all mad?" Yes, they'll say you're crazy. A bunch of crazy Christians are getting together, and that's what they're doing in there, and they're requiring this dress code and everything else that that they think needs to be opposed according to uh, Paul's scripture writing here. And this, these are things that they were already doing, which Paul condemns and says, "No, don't be doing that." But there is this hierarchy in this feminist movement that was there. They would have a tendency to rule over their husbands and he's trying to tell them and by the way you can read this from what he's teaching he's teaching the head of woman is who the man why because the head of woman was not always man sometimes the head of man was the woman and that was accepted back there in the society and they said what well, a woman is just as strong as a man we can do anything because of our will on the inside and no it's not the case and there's that move today You've seen that Wonder Woman. She's stronger than any man who is out there, isn't she? You know, and, and Captain Marvel, the woman who is out there, she can do anything. She, she has, like, fire come out of her fists. I, I, I don't know how she does that. And so there's this whole move. Women are supposed to be lifted up. There's no question about it. But when you see a woman just take down ten guys who are six foot six in a movie, it's like, really? You'd think that that's possible? 
that is not possible. But there is this move even today to set the women as superior over the men. And, and Paul is just saying, look, God set it up this way. This is how we're supposed to act. There are consequences, bad consequences that come if we don't follow God's plan. And he does this for our benefit. He doesn't do this to ruin our fun. You know, personally and, and with other guys when I was in high school, the women that were the girls, they were girls back then, that were loud, that would just be obnoxious. <laughs> All the guys would just go, oh, dude. It was, we'd turn away and walk away. like, And even if they were pretty, that would made it even worse. And most, I think, young women are pretty. Uh, but if they were pretty and they had this attitude... It's like, avoid them completely. Just stay away from that. Don't deal with crazy over there. And, but the, the young women who were quiet, who were modest, you could tell all the guys wanted to ask those girls out all the time. And it, that, now, I don't know about you other men, it, how it was going on in your schools, but that's how it was in our school. And there's a lot to be said. Even the famous secular philosopher, Dr. Laura, I don't know if you guys remember her. She even said for, she gave advice to women one time. I was listening to her to see what kind of wisdom she had, worldly wisdom or godly wisdom. And she said one time that if you're a, a young woman or a woman and, and you don't know what to say or how to conduct yourself uh, amongst a, a group of people, she said, and this is her counsel. She said, look, ladies, just dress nice, dress modestly, be quiet, stand up against the corner all by yourself and don't say anything. And she said, her counsel, that some guy will eventually come up and start talking to you because men are attracted to that kind of thing. And that's the secular wisdom, which is out there from the infamous Dr. Laura, who is no longer on the radio. But anyhow, it's this idea of the hierarchy which is out there. God is the head of Jesus. Jesus is the head of man. Man is the head of the woman. And woman is the head of the child. And there is no inferiority with anybody in the human race between men and women and children. But there is a submission factor, a humbleness that needs to go looking up the chain of authority, not up the chain of superiority. So this idea of head coverings for women... There don't need to be any kind of head covering for a woman. And he even says at the end of that passage right there that the long hair was given to her for her glory. That is her covering. And he's speaking specifically about authority here, not specifically about something resting upon the head. And, and that's kind of like the deeper meaning that comes from this. So men, whether or not they want to wear a hat, if somebody comes into the church wearing a hat that's a man, I'm going to say, okay, you want to wear a hat? Just don't block the person behind you if you have a 10-gallon cowboy hat. You know, take it off to be respectful from them or, or sit in the back. It's okay. So this idea of interpreting Scripture correctly, Scripture gets misinterpreted all the time. You know, there's this thing called hermeneutics. And that is the study of biblical interpretation. And you can turn to Scripture and you can interpret it pretty much any way you want to. 
And if you torture scripture enough, you can get it to say whatever you want it to say. But that's not what we're, what we're supposed to do as far as determining what the text has to say. Biblical text determines a direction of a sermon. The biblical text is to determine the practice of the Christian. The biblical text is to determine the will of God. And so you have to have a text inside of a context. If you don't have that, if you don't look at the grammatical structure, if you don't look at the linguistic history, the language which was there, the historical culture, and if you don't use inductive Bible study, you have a tendency to misinterpret what's going on. You've heard me talk about Ecclesiastes. Wine is the answer for, or money is the answer for everything, and wine makes life merry. So all you need is a bunch of wine and money, and things will be just fine. And it actually says that word for word, but that's not what it's supposed to mean. I went through with a youth group this last week. I mentioned this, uh, I think, before to you guys as well, that Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 4 says the earth lasts forever. But if you turn over to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 12, it says the earth is going to be destroyed. And so which is it? And in... The Jehovah Witnesses misinterpret and say the earth is going to be here forever. Well, it clearly says, even twice it says the earth is going to be destroyed. And so there seems to be a contradiction until you learn about poetry, until you learn about hermeneutics, until you learn about uh, the narrative style of interpretation. If you look at a narrative, you're supposed to just handle it just as it's written right there. And also, what's a metaphor and a similitude or a simile? If you look at that stuff, then you'll interpret Scripture properly. And there's a way to do it, and it is something that is taught. It is something that is acquired. It is something that is learned. But people who do not want to take the time to do that, they fall into error. And, of course, we know that Peter said this about Paul's writing, that ignorant and unstable people tend to misinterpret what he has to say there. So if you want to find out what the Scripture actually says, you're supposed to read it in the larger context. You're supposed to say, oh, well, what does it mean in the context of the chapter and the verses around it and in the particular book? Like, for instance, if you wanted to find out, is Jesus really God? Well, which book would you go to to find out if Jesus was really God? The first book would be John. The second book would be 1 John. You could also go to selected verses. You could go to uh, Romans uh, nine uh, verse five for there's are the patriarchs from whom is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all forever praised amen so that's where you would go if you want to learn about marriage where would you go to learn about marriage you go to Ephesians chapter five Colossians chapter three first Corinthians chapter seven and if you want to learn about wisdom where you go to the book of wisdom Proverbs that's where you would go if you want to learn how is this life Great, will it last, or is it going to come to an end and there's nothing you can take with you? You'd go to the book of Ecclesiastes to find that out. What about sacrifices? If you were a Jew and you wanted to know what are you supposed to sacrifice, you're supposed to go to the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy. What if you wanted to find out about end times things? Where would you go for that? Well, you'd go to First Thessalonians. You'd go to the book of Revelation. You'd go to selected scriptures inside of Matthew 24 and 25. You'd go to Luke 21. You'd go to Mark chapter 13. That's where you go to find these things out. There's a place to go. You don't want to cherry pick a particular verse and you hold that out and you say, see, women are to remain silent inside of the church. They're not allowed to talk. Well, what about the daughters of Stephen who prophesied inside the church? I I thought you're supposed to be silent inside the church. How does that work? Uh, Well, if you want to misinterpret it according to your preconceived ideas, then go ahead, but you're going to fall into error. And you could fall into serious error. 
when it comes to that. So we want to make sure we have the larger context of what is going on. And if you read a particular passage, you want to actually outline it. You want to say, well, this seems to be the main theme of the whole passage, but then he breaks it down into different subsets here. We want to pay attention to those subsets. And Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, read a passage repeatedly, meditate on it 30 or 40 times if you're going to preach on it. That's a lot of times going through it. Okay, I'm going to say, you'd have it memorized by the time you get done, but you'd be very familiar with it. And you want to confirm the limits of the passage. If you had an NAS, a New American Standard Bible, there's little stories in there. They're, they're called pericopes. You also have the uh, parables which are there. And you want to maintain the parable inside its confines and not go outside of that or drag in some verses from another part of the chapter to insert in that if they don't seem to flow with the rest of the passage. But you want to keep it in context and you want to limit it to what's being talked about there. And so uh, there are other things here too. That larger context, uh, read the passage repeatedly. You can make your own translation from the original language. You know, it's not hard to do that even if you don't speak Greek or write, write Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, any of those things. There are Bible helps which are out there that can help you uh, to write out a larger context of what the text is. You can go to the Amplified Bible and it does that. You can make a list of key terms. If there's a word that shows up like seven times in four verses, do you think that that's important? What if you have a little child and you go, no, 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 something like that. What if you get to do that? Are, are you communicating a message? Is it important? Yeah, like they might hurt themselves. Well, God says that to us as well. If he's repeating a word over and over and over, you go, I think he wants me to get this word, whatever this word is, and walk away with that. And then the syntax, the grammars, the semantics. You, you know, um, if you had a phrase, the phrase would be like, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Are you talking about birds? You're not talking about birds. You're not talking about bushes. It means something completely different. You can probably think of little colloquialisms like that, where you're speaking about something, but it has nothing to do with the actual words and their common meaning. There's a deeper underlying meaning. Now, women have a tendency to communicate like this, or as that, more than men. Men are direct. What's that? Women don't have a tendency to communicate like that. They have a tendency to be more feeling. They have a tendency to move with compassion when they try to understand something. Have you ever seen some of these interviews where the woman interviewer tries to lead uh, the man in a way that she wants him to go and he does not comply and that she keeps on asking questions in different ways? For instance, I saw a... uh, uh, interview with uh, maybe you know him Jordan Peterson and this woman was talking about male privilege how male dominate society and she was one of these womanists that were out there and she said well male dominate everything and he goes no I don't think so there's a small group that do but not everyone does and then he started explaining this is where I got it where there's more men who fall to suicide There's more men who fall to stress. There's more men who are homeless. There's more men that are drug abusing. 
You know, so all of that is like, is that the privilege that you're talking about, that you're referring to? But she was trying to lead him in a particular way. And, and people do that on both sides. And so we want to make sure that as we're reading a text, there's something that is supposed to be communicated clearly, but sometimes you have to dig for it. You know how much uh, dirt you have to move to get an ounce of gold? Usually about 2,000 pounds. 2,000 pounds of dirt to get one ounce of gold. So how hard do you have to work to get a gold nugget from the scriptures. You have to work at it. You can't just take it on the face value and say, oh, that's obviously what it means. No, I don't think it's quite what it means there. I think you need to understand everything surrounding the passage. And also examine Old Testament parallels like adultery and divorce. And you do eventually want to consult some commentaries. There are those who I know, one guy in particular, he took all the commentaries out of his library and threw them away. And he said, I don't need those commentaries. God can guide me. You know, there are pastors and teachers which have been set up and who actually write books in order to help people understand what the scripture has to say. And if you want to do that after you've done your own research because they can provide some historical, cultural background for what is taking place. Uh, Nave's Topical Bible, you can go to something like that and you can look it up where they categorize everything in a, in a certain subject. And then we want to make application after we do that. Is there a specific moral issue? Is there information or is there a directive that has been issued? And we want to identify the audience to whom the teaching has been delivered because that matters a lot. If you delivered the sacrificial system to the Greeks, would it mean anything to them? It wouldn't. It only means something to the covenant people, the Israelites. And so when Paul says he becomes all things to all men that he might win some, he understands what the scripture tells him to do as far as reaching the Jews. To the Jews, he became a Jew. To the Greeks, he became a Greek. And so once we learn all this information and we interpret the scripture properly, we don't misinterpret it like they were doing in, in the church of Corinth. Their practices were off. They were installing things that should not have been installed as far as practices and directives. And Paul comes along and says, look, you need to correct this. And so to the Gentile, he became a Gentile. Also, he was the one that stood up and said, circumcision is nothing. And don't require those who are Christians to become circumcised. And in Acts chapter 15, you had the council of the elders who were in Jerusalem and he appealed to them and he wrote the book of Galatians which you know they they were in error uh, in the church of Galatia they wanted every Christian to follow the book of the law in the Old Testament and its practices and Paul said forget it don't be doing that so it's real important that we interpret the scriptures correctly that we're able to give a reason for the hope that lies within. If somebody asks us, we tell them. And we also stand on the moral footing that God has given to us. It's not our footing, it's his footing. If there is a group out there that says, go ahead and pillage and mayhem and rape and all of that, no, we're not supposed to do that. Because God says not to, and we're supposed to be able to explain it to others. And what I started with here is, if there's somebody who is evil out there, call evil for what it is. Or to rebuke our neighbor so that we will not be a part of their evil behavior if we see it. And that's a tough call. You know, so if there are churches and people inside those churches that we see that are acting improperly, 
Not that you go on, quote-unquote, a crusade, I'm going to find all those churches and show up and tell them how they're wrong. It's not like that. You encounter somebody, you find out there's error, you instruct them properly in the Word of God. And if we do this, it benefits everybody. It's not just a select group. But the enemy would have you believe, just remain silent. Don't say anything. Don't learn anything. Just go to church and sing your little songs and things will be just fine. And I don't say this as a way of condemning. It's a way of encouraging. If you do this, you will be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it instructs us. And and Father, help us to read it properly, to interpret it correctly, to not fall into error. And we understand it is your will that we understand your word. So help us in our pursuits to be faithful, to really dig out the meaning which might be there. And for those who misunderstand, Lord, I pray that you would enlighten them. I pray that you would bring clarity what your will is and what the will of the world is. May that clarity be so stark that there is no confusion. In Jesus' name, amen.